0: Man, I was talking about climate earlier this week, climate change. We were talking about, you know, heat domes and atmospheric rivers and what have you. It triggers a lot of people. I was told to go eat bugs and stop being freaked out about climate change. It's like There are people still denying that our climate is changing on this planet due to human impact. As you heard in John Strait's news, perhaps you were listening just moments ago, uh, this past Monday and Tuesday, hottest days on human history record set globally. The, the numbers are undeniable. In fact, the science is undeniable. And you don't have to believe me. I get the great job of, of interviewing people who actually study this stuff. And our next guest does just that. Simon Johner is UBC professor and climate scientist. Simon, good to speak with you again. Thanks for doing this happy to be here jody i want to talk to you about the the extremes the 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 terminology the things that people want to push some people want to push back on and others are screaming from the rooftops the the divisiveness and the politicization of climate is is very real but let's talk about some of the terminology that that gets tossed around uh, in headlines and many don't necessarily understand. I'll give you the first example: El Niño. Remembering the first time we heard El Niño, it was like, "Ooh, that's going to be a warmer winter." I think El Niño. What does it mean from a scientific perspective?
1: Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you're asking about that. Uh, El Niño is one of the things I've studied a lot over the years. Um, El Niño is a phenomenon that happens in the equatorial Pacific. So in the ocean, far away from us, so the question is, why should we care? The Pacific Ocean, covering so much of the planet and having so much heat in it, just because uh, the tropics of the Pacific, it's a big wide part of the planet, when the conditions in the Pacific change, it can actually affect the weather all over the planet. And so people discovered a long, long time ago that every few years, the Eastern part of the Pacific ocean warms up and it happens for natural reasons. It's sort of like just a natural resonance within the movement of the ocean and the atmosphere. But the result of that happening, it, it it's so it, there's so much heat there. You know, the water's really warm in the equatorial Pacific that by moving around where the warm water is, it's kind of like dropping a huge rock into a stream. You know, like mm-hmm. people would have done with kids You're playing in a stream, you move the rocks around, it makes the water move around. So if you move, yeah. The warm water around in the, you know, near the equator in the tropics in the Pacific, it changes how the air flows in the atmosphere as well, because it's just so much energy being being moved around. And the result is it affects the weather here in Canada. And, and so the reason it's uh, been in the news so much lately is uh, scientists all around the world follow the, and track the temperatures of water in the Pacific Ocean to see whether an El Nino event is coming or not, and, and the recent decision and announcement by a number of groups around the world said, "is It looks like we're at the start of another El Nino event."
0: So, Professor, when when I, I'm so glad that you're explaining it in, in a way that we can consume it. So, this is naturally caused this event that heats the Pacific and yet it affects our jet stream in a way that all of a sudden we're seeing that high pressure when we're looking at Mark Madriga or Christy Gordon's map on the global news and we see like the high pressure that builds over the west coast that makes all of the cooler temperatures and rain go up and over us and and it impacts our environment and our climate here and and is it is it more extreme now as the whole planet tends to as represented in the last couple of days heats up on a global scale
1: yeah absolutely so there's a there's a few different things to unpack there Um, the first is as you were just as you were describing when an El Nino event happens it just basically shifts weather patterns around the planet Uh, when you average that all together it means that the planet tends to be warmer the atmosphere tends to be warmer during an El Nino event right and so we have seen many of the record breaking temperature uh, like global temperature records that have happened in the past 20 30 years have happened during the El Niño events. That's mm-hmm. not surprising. We expect the atmosphere on average to be warmer during an El Niño event. But here's the really key thing. All of this is happening. El Niños happen naturally, right? But all of that is happening on top of an atmosphere that we're changing because we're putting more greenhouse gases in it. Right. And so as we add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, we're trapping more energy in the in the system and the whole system's going to warm. That includes both the atmosphere and the oceans. And so it doesn't necessarily mean we get more or less El Nino events, but it means that they're each warmer. And it's interesting. So if you go into the past and actually uh, my students and I have done this as a researcher. we have pa- research papers published on this very subject. If you go back into the past and you look at each year and you say, well, was it an El Nino year? Or was it a neutral year, not El Nino? Or was it the opposite? Was it a La Nina year, which is like an exaggerated version of normal conditions? And if you categorize all of them and look at them over time, they've all warmed. So El Nino events have gotten warmer. La Nina events have gotten warmer. And the normal or neutral years have gotten warmer. And that's all because of climate change. And so when you hear people on the news, uh, you know, you read stuff online or whatever, Talking about, oh, we're going into an El Nino event and it's going to be warm. That's a combination of the fact that, yes, El Nino events tend to make the atmosphere warmer, but we've also warmed the planet by burning fossil fuels and other things. And when you put all that together, we end up really breaking records during El Nino events.
0: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, I love being able to bend the ear of those who know and study deeply entrenched in the things that we debate around our kitchen tables. Things like climate change, uh, weather extremes, UBC professor and climate scientist Simon Donner is our guest. And Simon, before the break, I was we were talking about. El Nino and you were speaking to how much warmer the earth is, both by human caused and, you know, coupled with some of the trends that have gone on naturally for forever. And people who want to argue that climate change uh, doesn't exist, it's made up by the government in to, to take more money out of our pockets, point to um, extra large snowpacks or extreme cold weather events as to why global warming air quotes isn't a thing because there are those extreme cold weather events can you help explain that
1: absolutely i'm happy to it is i'll say it is you know confusing and i'm saying frustrating for many people because you hear you hear scientists people like me talking about climate change the planet's getting warmer And then you experience something. You're like, well, this week, this month, this year, this winter was cold where I live. And you're like, well, my experience hasn't been that the planet's warming. So the first first thing to know is that, of course, scientists, we're talking about the planet overall warming. And so we're talking about the data put together, averaged around the planet. We would expect the planet overall to be warming because we put more heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. And the evidence for that is overwhelming because it's not just about uh, temperature recordings like even if we'd never invented the mercury thermometer we would still know the planet's warming because we have all these other biological and physical ways of tracking it glaciers receding warm water fish moving further north like there's so many different examples of where we can see the evidence that the planet's warming even without measuring temperatures but when it comes to um, individual experiences some of it is that it we're, we're, our experiences over too short a period of time. And if you go back over long enough and look at the data, actually the snowpack has receded on average across Canada, The um, particularly in the, the spring. So if we look at like uh, May, June snow, pack, um, snow coverage and like no, the really higher latitudes of Canada, it's definitely receded over time. And, mm. and so that's happened. But there are a few tricky things about how climate change is affecting the movement of air in the atmosphere that can lead to some extreme winter outbreaks that are weirdly related to the fact that the planet's warming. Hmm.
0: That's something. I, it, it sparks in my mind um, similarly the the increase in really intense storms that we see when there I remember the first time that I think there were four hurricanes lined up um you know uh, bearing down on the the southeastern united states i remember looking at the at the satellite image and thinking i don't think anybody's ever, ever seen anything like this before similar to that when we see the extreme events all of these things are interconnected in in one way or another
1: yeah so i mean a lot of the different extreme events what climate change is doing is setting the conditions for it to happen so for example uh whether climate change is, is creating more hurricanes or tropical cyclones around the planet is sort of actually sort of still up for debate. But what isn't up for debate is that the given hurricane or tropical cyclone is going to be stronger and more destructive because of climate change. Mm-hmm. Because with warmer water, it means more energy for, for the cyclone, which is going to have our hurricane is going to have stronger winds. There's going to be a higher storm surge because the sea level is higher, et cetera. And and there's a variety of examples like that. Same thing is sort of true for forest fire activity across Canada. Of course, we've had forest fires in the past. And we went through large, long stretches of time without many fires because of fire suppression. But what's what's happening now is that the climate's changed in a way that we're setting the conditions that make fires more likely and fires easier to spread. And that's where you sometimes hear the term fire weather. The weather mm-hmm. that is conducive to fires is just much more frequent than it used to be.
0: Our, just, I could talk to you all hour, honestly, and beyond. Um, when it comes to the, the personal, the human effect, the mental and physical piece of this, um, of climate change, when people are panicking about because some certainly are, while some want to deny that it's happening and some are at the other extreme so overwhelmed by it. Can you leave us with a positive? Is there something? Are we doing something? Are, it, leave us with some piece of hope on this subject. <laughs>
1: Professor. So I'll tell you what, like, you know, I, we're, we're laying out the truth of the science, right? I don't like saying all of the things I've been saying, but what am I supposed to do? Not tell you the truth about what, what right. the data shows? Right. So I'm I'm explaining all that. But I, d- despite all that, I'm actually pretty optimistic about our, our abilities to, to shift tracks. The challenge, you know, and the nice thing is that whatever you do, like wherever you live uh, in, in the region... There's something you can do to be a part of this, whether it is the type of vehicle you drive, how you heat and cool, how heat and cool your home and uh, to the the food you eat. There's all these individual personal decisions you can make. And we see people making it across the country, like the vast majority of Canadians really want to take climate action. Like polls are consistent about that, Uh, like well over 80 percent of Canadians. Um, What we need is a change in the incentives. Because, you know, for you or I to make these decisions on our own, you know, they may come at a little bit of a cost. So we need policies. We need government to set the incentives. It makes it easier for you and I to make those choices. Right. And that's where things do. like rebates for electric vehicles help out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah i'm I'm feeling pretty good about my Prius Prime plug-in right now, <laughs> especially when I drive <laughs> by the gas stations uh, that are going. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that. I you, you did make me feel good off the back end there because we do as a society need to make the the small changes that we can afford to do to be all pulling in the right direction and And thank you for taking my layperson's questions this morning. I really appreciate it.
1: Happy to be on.
0: Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Are you looking for a jolt? Take a stroll through your local grocery store and do a price check. <laughs> no matter one's income, the spiking cost of food is frightening. But for those who struggle to put food on the table and were doing so before the pandemic, the supply chain disruptions, price fixing scandals, inflation, things have gone next level. And you know, the federal government's plan to help is that rebate that's coming in for some 11 million Canadians. It's like, it's like the GST tax credit, right? It's a direct deposit. Uh, it, it's for low and modest uh, earners. Uh, $467 is the rebate, the highest rebate uh, that for a uh, A family, and then you got singles getting about $234, uh, seniors, $225. Yeah, the federal government's plan to help there. That one time lump sum might almost fill a grocery cart. (laughs) got to talk all of this through uh, and also touch on as i've been mentioning all morning why sriracha hot sauce is selling for 41 a bottle on amazon we welcome one of the better follows on twitter a great b- a blog writer podcaster he is the associate professor of food agriculture and resource economics at the university of guelph mike von masso is with us hello there
2: hello jody how are you today
0: good thank you i love reading your blog it, there's so much great information on there. I could talk to you for hours about all things. Highly recommend it's foodfocusguelph.ca for anyone who is a bit of a foodie and wants to dive in on on many subjects around this. But where to begin with you, Professor? I think we start with the uh, the rebate, the grocery rebate. Um, yep. What what do you take? What's your takeaway on what the government's trying to do here?
2: Well, a little bit is better than nothing, uh, and True. and really, there's probably not a lot other a lot of other things the government can do. To me, uh, a one-time payment to 11 million people might be uh, might be less valuable than a, than two or three payments to a, a smaller subset. It's clear that the working poor, the people on assistance, the retirees on fixed income are bearing a disproportionate burden uh, of, of these price increases, not least because they're also the ones that are renting and seeing increases in, 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 the, cost of, uh, in the cost of housing. So it, there, there wasn't a lot of other things the government could do, frankly. So it's a good thing. Um, it's not a big thing. And as you said, it's maybe one cart full of groceries. Uh, and uh, we see that although there's some room for optimism... There is uh, there is an ongoing uh, series of price increases that uh, that that are putting more and more pressure on Canadians.
0: So, what could be done? You, you you gave us a little spark of hope in there, in in that perhaps we 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 might be turning a corner to some affordability uh, eventually. this has been a perfect storm with the pandemic, with the supply chain disruptions and more supply chain disruption now, uh, particularly in BC with this port strike um, but with with the cost of living globally spiking inflation on a global scale post or echoing of the pandemic, how do you see a shifting? Is is there a is there a a ceiling to to where food costs are going? Because it is really truly astounding to walk through, particularly the produce section, and and see just the co- the sheer cost of food right well, now.
2: Yeah, it, and and you're exactly right. We have had sort of a perfect storm, and and th- that's actually not a bad metaphor because another contributor to the ex the, to the uh, uh, to the price pressure we're seeing or are, are these extreme weather events we saw lettuce we saw tomatoes we saw other things going through the roof over the course of this winter uh, and and that was because it you know there there's drought in in Mexico there were there was flooding in the Salinas Valley and so we saw uh-huh. supply of those products affected now as uh, as you said, there's a glimmer of hope. We're getting into the Canadian production season. In the Fraser Valley there, you're actually probably ahead of us and starting to get some domestic produce that doesn't have to come as far, that's not getting paid for in American dollars. And and hopefully the weather has been reasonable. We're late here in Ontario on, on uh, strawberries, but have had a really amazing asparagus year. So getting into some of these seasonal things should see... Some of these prices come down, but we've had all of these hap- things happen all at once. Not, and the war in Ukraine has also been a significant impact on pasta has gone up, bread has gone up, flour has gone up, vegetable oil has gone up because of the, 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 the fact that those products aren't coming out of, uh, out of the, the Ukrainian wheat isn't coming out of that country uh, because right. of the war.
0: So you brought up bread there. I want to talk about um, the price-fixing scandal and how long it took for there to be some resolution with that and and how the distrust has grown so exponentially from the consumer toward the grocers and the monopolies that we're seeing in in our country with regard to grocers. Can you give us your perspective on on? How that all played out, the bread price fixing scandal and and where we move forward and seeing grocers making unbelievable profits at the same time where um, everyday citizens are feeling gouged.
2: Yep. And, and, and so, you know, I, I can understand entirely how Canadians are feeling. You know, I, I'm feeling the pressure, too. I'm lucky I have a, a good income, but we're feeling the pinch. Uh, we're feeling the pinch as we go to the grocery store, too. And, and, and I can understand that there's some skepticism uh, about the role of retailers uh, in, in this. We talked about a lot of other things that are contributing to price increases. We saw some resolution to the bread price fixing scandal, and and I think it's worth noting that while Loblaw's was one of the players in that, it was mostly through their Weston Bread division, and the company that was it was fined uh, last week fifty million dollars was Canada Bread, which is a which is a baker and not a retailer. So that this was happening before it got to retail with you know at least the senior ma- the senior leadership at loblaws is likely to have known about it um so so i think that it's easy to be uh, critical of the retailers, I think we're blaming them for much more than they deserve to be blamed for. It was nice to see some resolution to the bread price fixing scandal. It was a bit surprising that it took so long, and perhaps we need to give the competition bureau a little bit more teeth uh, in order to uh, in in order to make this go a little bit faster and perhaps mm-hmm. uh, make the make the implications a little more significant. Now. Having said all of that, I mean, saying it's not at the retailer at the, at the baker level, there's just as much concentration there as there is at the retail level, which, which makes this easier. So perhaps, uh, perhaps looking at, uh, at consolidation might be something that, that could reduce the risk of this happening.
0: We're with Mike von Masso, Associate Professor of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. And Professor, when you talk about competition, that's another thing that sparks great discussion around kitchen tables is why these huge companies, you know, you see the the Venn diagram of how many pieces of our uh, grocery puzzle all lead back to a couple of massive companies and sort of you know, squeezing out the smaller uh, grocer or provider, uh, food seller. Um, What's your take on on the ever sort of seemingly growing monopoly? Is that just a headline reading sort of buzz feed or is that actually something that's happening? And if so, what do you think about that?
2: Well, I I think there's no doubt we're seeing incredible consolidation in Canada. You know, the big, Five probably represent over 80% of the groceries purchased in this country. And as, as we see, these big players are buying regional chains, um, and even if they're keeping the, the original flag on them, um, they, they are buying up these regional chains and, and increasing their control over the marketplace. I'm not necessarily – I think competition is good. I think choice is good. Yeah. One of the things we need to think about, though, is the trade-off of the potential to capture market and then raise prices with uh, the economies of scale as, as these companies get bigger. right? Grocery business is expensive. We know that the large grocers, Loblaws, Metro, Sobeys, the, those parent companies, have, dis- have their own distribution. They can buy better. Uh, and, and so that, uh, th- that gives them an ability to be more competitive. One of the reasons that it's difficult for the small players is they can't buy as well and so then can't sell as cheaply as the big players. So we have to make sure we don't cut off our, our nose to spite our face. I was interested, the Competition Bureau came out last week and said we need more competition in the grocery industry without basing it on a whole lot of in- analysis i would argue but in that report it said explicitly that one of the foreign retailers that they spoke with said we don't we haven't come into canada yet because we're not convinced we can compete on price uh, and so to me that's reasonably telling that that even though we're we're relatively concentrated these retailers are still competing with each other tooth and nail to get you to walk in the door of of their store. And so uh, I think that competition is good. I'm just not convinced that we'll see uh, a dramatic decrease uh, in prices if we have a whole bunch of new players in the marketplace.
0: Associate Professor Mike von Masso of uh, Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph is our guest. And uh, Professor, I want to talk to you about our port problems in B.C. and how that might impact um, our food access, the food chain, the supply chain across the country, as well as the economic piece of the puzzle. Uh, It might be a B.C. thing, but this is very much a Canadian problem, is it not?
2: It is a Canadian problem. So as consumers particularly with the port strike being at this time of year it's likely to have less of an impact than it might have through the winter when we're importing a lot of fresh produce uh, a lot of that's coming by truck from south and central uh, from from the US and central america uh, where we're going to see a significant impact across this country is on exports of grain oil seeds meat uh, which are are, are big contributors to economic activity in this country. And if we can't get those products out through the ports, uh, we'll have a backup. It'll hurt farmers. It'll hurt people who uh, work on railways. And, and, and so it has broad implications. As consumers for product coming in, this is about the best time of year that this kind of strike could happen. It's much more likely to have, as as consumers, more likely to have impact on uh, manufactured goods than it is on uh, on food. So you're hearing the Retail Council of Canada say we might start to see some empty shelves with Mm -hmm. products that are coming from around the world, particularly Asia, that are manufactured less likely to have an impact on food.
0: You're a great follow on social media. I follow you on Twitter, I'm at Mike Von Masso on Twitter, as well as your blog I referenced earlier in our conversation, foodfocusguelph.ca. Could you tell us what's going on with Sriracha? Yeah.
2: Well, Sriracha is really kind of an interesting, I could give you a, a sort of a simple economics lesson based on, on Sriracha. One brand, the leading brand of, of Sriracha, is in short supply, uh, it, we talked earlier about extreme weather events. There's been a, a disruption in production of red jalapenos, primarily drought in northern Mexico. Uh, the Colorado River is short of water, uh, and so we've been there's been less available for for irrigation. So there's if there's less input, there's going to be less output, and so sriracha of that type has gotten more expensive. It's getting it's it's harder to find, and uh, there is a there is a strong loyalty uh, to mm-hmm. uh, to that brand of sriracha. Some people swear by it, and so as you said, forty one dollars over the weekend uh, in uh, on Amazon. Now I looked in some online grocery, uh, did some online grocery pricing, and some of the players are having it at the regular price and just saying, "Well, limited quantities available." Some stores just don't have it listed, so. Different stores are responding to it uh, strategically differently. What's interesting is there are other sriracha hot sauces out there, but because of the strength of that brand and because people say that, uh, well, I, I like that one, I don't like anyone else, any other ones. It's more difficult to substitute, uh, and so that's why the price has gone up. I mean, many other people make a sriracha hot sauce but people say it's not the same and 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 are loyal so our our willingness to substitute will will drive how much uh we have to pay for for hot sauces Uh, you know i was joking the other day that i've got a half bottle of that hot sauce in my fridge uh the prices have gone up probably not enough to uh for me to retire on and i'm growing three (laughs) jalapeno plants on my deck probably not going to offset the shortage
0: no, probably not. But it's interesting, though, how brand loyal people are. It's kind of with Sriracha, which that with that particular brand that we all know. I mean, some people wear T-shirts for it, the little yep. green top of the squeeze bottle. It's kind of like the equivalent of the Heinz ketchup. You know, there are no other kinds.
1: Well, you,
2: you know, the, the, it, it speaks to this to the strength of, uh, of, of brands. And, and it also speaks to a little bit about how we behave as consumers in this country. We are mm. very much creatures of habit. And if something was in our uh, our grocery bin last week, it's likely to be in our cart again this week. And and so that makes it harder for us to adapt as as prices are going up. We're we're less willing and open to trying different products, you know, whether it's a specific brand or whether it's a specific type of produce. If broccoli is more expensive, is there something else that's in season that we can buy cheaper? There probably is, but we're often not willing to make those changes.
0: Yes, you just have to have what you want when you want it. Thank you very much for uh, spending a bunch of time with us today. We've learned a lot.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Have a great day.
0: Welcome back to The Mike Smith Show. I am Jody Vance sitting in this week. I have a question for you. How much of your income do you allocate for where you live? Do you employ the 30% rule? you wouldn't be alone. Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corp began adopting that rule back in 1986, remember that? Some of us do. And for decades holding a 30% benchmark to, to serve as a good measure for housing affordability in Canada has been the case. But you know what, in 2020, they came up with the housing hardship concept. Many of us are familiar with the housing hardships, particularly in Metro Vancouver. That was introduced to acknowledge that some households just simply could not keep housing costs to 30% of their budget. So that's the question for today. Is the 30% rule forever outdated? And if so, what should be budgeted for? Is there a number, is there a benchmark to look at? To talk this through, we connect with somebody who knows a lot about personal finance. In fact, she is a personal finance expert and host of For What It's Worth, Saturdays at 9 a.m. and Sundays at 5 a.m. right here on the network, Rubina Ahmed-Hawk is with us. Rubina, hello. Hello. So many people stress out about how much they need to, to save and how much they need to spend on, your first apartment or your mortgage? What are we looking at in terms of the 30% rule? Is that completely outdated?
3: It is completely outdated. And the part of the reason is is because interest rates, uh, even though now we are in a much higher interest rate environment than we were last year, uh, interest rates have been low for about 20 years. So people could afford, and this is really speaking to those who are buying a home and getting a mortgage. People could afford to uh, spend more and more because interest rates allowed them to service that debt uh, with with uh, with less of with, it didn't cost as much to service that debt. Also, home prices right. have gone up uh, have gone up in the last 20 years, so you need more of your money uh, to go towards uh, buying that home. And uh, that 30% number really means that 30% of your income uh, goes towards paying for shelter costs, some utilities. Uh, and uh, banks will often look at that number as, you know, uh, can you afford this mortgage or this loan for the long term? Uh, but we know, like you said, in Metro Vancouver, it's true in Toronto as well, that uh, home prices have come up so fast uh, that that number, most people are spending a lot more uh, to, to get into their first home, especially. Uh, and, and in the beginnings of their mortgage, are spending much more than 30% of their income to service it.
0: There are so many people listening right now, Rubina, going, doing the math, doing the math, doing the math. Because people sometimes just launch into what I want, where I want to live. They don't necessarily look at what their income might be. And then once they're in it, and there is a change in the interest rates and people feel the pinch of a variable mortgage or or even just escalating rentals, and all of a sudden it's untenable. So if you're looking at, say you're single and you're living on your own in Vancouver, uh, the, the survey numbers show that you would basically need a salary of $9,000 a month or $108,000 a year to pay for an average one bedroom to keep to the 30% of your income before taxes, because that's an important piece as well. Is it before tax money? Is it after tax money? Are we are we folding in the fact that our grocery costs have increased exponentially? Um, just looking at your basic personal budget, what's some of the advice that you give as a personal finance expert to those who are trying to even figure out what to spend on their uh, on their on their essentials, on on a roof over their head, the bills that are essential, as well as, you know, feeding yourself or and or your family?
3: So this is based on gross salary. So this is before taxes. So say if you make. A uh, hundred thousand uh, dollars. That that thirty percent, you know, represents that you shouldn't be spending more than thirty thousand dollars a year on your shelter costs, on your uh, utilities, and other things that are going to help you uh, pay for your home. Uh, and with grocery costs and everything else coming up, those numbers are important to watch. You don't want you know sixty percent of your salary going towards shelter costs, and then on the other side, you've got more expenses because of groceries, because of uh, cost of living, because of gas prices, everything else being higher. So it's not that the 30% number is necessarily outdated. It's that that realistically, to get into your first home, a lot of people do have to stretch uh, to afford that first home. And for the first five or six years, uh, they may be putting much more than 30% of their income towards servicing that property. Uh, But the thinking is, is that as you get along in your mortgage, you don't want to continually live in that situation uh, because then you don't have any money to save for the future. You don't have any money to pay down other debt. And so that can get you can just become, you know, as we often talk about paycheck to paycheck. And that's not a very financially uh, safe place to be.
0: We're with Rabina Ahmed Hawk, a personal finance expert and host of "For What It's Worth," right here on the network. It's Saturdays at nine AM and uh, and Sundays at five AM. And Rabina, just in terms of talking through the ugly numbers, people stress out so much about obviously finances, particularly when we have rising interest rates, inflation, uh, affordability crisis when it comes to housing. Housing stocks are so tight and and even just watching global morning news this morning one of the headlines was up again you know the cost of housing in metro vancouver has gone up in june again even as the bank of canada keeps increasing rates what are we looking at in terms of um how that what we we're also conditioned for the better part of two decades to have inflation or sorry um uh, the the lender's rate the mortgage rates being basically free money, and now people are facing you know, renewals on their mortgage where their uh, costs of servicing that debt are gonna go up exponentially. How, how do you um, advise people uh, in, in trying to manage not just the stress of that, but the realistic piece of that, not going paycheck to paycheck, or worse, deeper in debt?
3: So the number one thing you should do if you're worried about your ability to pay your mortgage is to call your bank and to see if they have any solutions available to you because uh, the people that are really affected by these interest rate hikes are a very core group of people. So you would have bought your house in 2021, early 2022. You would have bought it as your first home, so not bringing any equity from the sale of 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 a home that you already have. So getting in, right. into that home with minimum amount down and then going variable on your mortgage. Now, there are a lot of people that did do that. They, they, they bought their first home, they put you know as much as they could down, went variable on the mortgage, and then they saw interest rates starting to go up. In many cases, people have seen their payments double in the last year because interest rates have gone from, like you said, almost 0, 0.25%. There's another interest rate announcement coming uh, this month. Expectation is, is that they could go up 25 more basis points and that would put the overnight rate at 5%. That's a 475 basis point hike in just wow. over a year. And for a lot of people, uh, their mortgage is becoming unaffordable. So even though they were stress-tested by the bank, which they have to be, it was only stress-tested at 2 percentage points, not at uh, a 4 4.75 percentage point hike. So wow. the best thing to do, call your bank, see if they have any solutions for you. Could you... Uh, reduce your payments. Could you um, get into a situation where maybe going fixed might make sense because it will give you peace of mind? Um, a lot of people, when they first get their mortgage, they'll go accelerated biweekly. This is, a, 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 I'm sure, some uh, language that people have heard when they first get their mortgage. Maybe bringing it back down to just regular bi weekly will free up some of that cash. Now, that does right. mean you're paying your mortgage off slower, but it does give you cash flow for each month for other things in your life.
0: Yeah, a little uh, immediate relief. Now, during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about pausing your mortgage if need be. When people were told to go home, stay home, and there wasn't even really work from home, there was that conversation around calling your bank and seeing if you can put your mortgage on pause for a a small window of time, still incurring the interest and having to pay that back or elongating the mortgage, as you said, you know, it'll take you longer to pay off. Is that an option that is always on the table for extreme situations? Will banks consider that? as well
3: so at that time they were allowing banks to pause mortgages without any effect on your credit up to six months so that was something that if you lost your job you could immediately take advantage of and then that would free up all that money that you pay towards mortgage uh, to go towards other things the banks still do have what's called take a holiday so you can take one month off your mortgage payment again you do pay interest on that money So if you say your mortgage payment is $3,000 a month, if you are not making that $3,000 payment this month, they're not going to ding you on your credit rating or your credit report. They're not going to put you in arrears because they're aware that you're not making the payment this month, but you will pay interest on that money because it's one month delayed that you're actually giving the the bank that money back. So um, as long as you're aware of the fact that it's it's an expensive solution to freeing up cash, uh, then, then that's fine. And that sometimes that can be all that you need It's just one month off where that thousands of dollars that goes towards mortgage goes towards paying down other debt, credit card debt, maybe getting yourself out of some uh, utility bills that are overdue, getting those paid off, and then you could feel like you're back on track again. If that's what it's going to do, it's, it's an excellent way to, uh, to, at least for the short term, um, fix your financial situation.
0: Such great advice. Such great advice, Rubina. Before I let you go, I just want to ask one more thing. Because calling your bank is job one. Um, if you find yourself in a in a crisis situation, for those who maybe are already in the crisis and have been, you know, paying the Visa with the Amex and and just going into that super high interest debt and and sort of doing the bury your head in the sand. Um, how do you? How do you? suggest people take those first steps towards uh, getting back on track financially because so many people are feeling an affordability crunch right now it is it is so much greater i mean just walking we talked earlier on the show walking through the grocery store you want to have a shock walk through the produce section and just look at some of the prices there um, how how do you rein it all in when you feel like you're buried by debt
3: So the number one place I would say you should go is the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has a list of financial counselors that they have vetted that are available to you. And in most cases, they are absolutely free. They may be able to help you understand whether a consumer proposal or even worse, bankruptcy is a option that you need to think about if you've gotten yourself into a situation where it just feels like you're never going to be able to get out of it. A lot of people are afraid sometimes to go that route, but it can be a way for you to press pause on what's happening with your finances and then build that better credit history for the future rather than you know continuing to try to get out of this debt that you've created for yourself. A consumer proposal, for example, is a way where uh, someone will go and talk to your creditors about coming up with a solution of how uh, you can pay that debt off, maybe reducing it at some point, or um, putting you on a payment schedule. They're going to be able to help you through that. The other thing is financial planners. So people get uh, sometimes confused between planners, counselors, and advisors. So advisors is someone who will give you that hardcore buy this stock, sell this kind of advice. A counselor is someone that's going to help you work through some of the habits that you've created and uh, give you some options of ways you can get out of that debt. And a planner is going to help set you up for success. So they're going to look at your finances holistically. This is your income. These are your assets. These are your goals. This is how you can get there and give you a roadmap. And so looking at those three different pieces, there may be uh, some help there that you can get. And in many cases, it's not going to cost you anything. Uh, FCAC definitely has some great resources of people in your own community that you can talk to about your debt situation, about your failure to save situation, whatever it is um and get you get you on a better path
0: bringing the blood pressure down calming the waters figuring it out great advice rabina thank you for your time today
3: thank you for most of us crime is something we see on the news we never think it could happen to us until it does